Remakers Mark Special Episode 29, In Memoriam 2021. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to Remakers Mark. Here we are in our 29th special episode, where we will be doing our annual In Memoriam episode for the year of 2021. It was a hard year for a lot of people. We lost a lot of folks, but we're here to celebrate those who we happened to lose this last year. Uh, as is usual, Andy will be hosting the In Memoriam episode. So, Andy, I'm going to hand it off to you here. Welcome to our annual In Memoriam episode. I am Andy, your harbinger of death. I can't keep that up the whole time. I do not have a drink handy, so that voice will last approximately seven more seconds. Your uh, your levels are way too low anyways. It's okay. Well, we could just insert some Vincent Price in post. I, I was going to ask if anyone had a good quick plug-in for a you know, Vincent Price voice modulator. Um, I can lend you my Kylo Ren. Would that oh, work? Oh, yeah. The Kylo <laughs> Trump podcast. That was a great short-lived <laughs> podcast. So, yes, as we do this every year, we celebrate those that we lost. And we're going to each do two picks, one that we're going to you Googleize at length and then uh, a slightly shorter round. And I'm going to start us off with a bang because 2021 was a difficult year for a lot of reasons for a lot of people. And what really sucked is that 2021 wouldn't go out without a bitch grenade or a nut flick because on December 31st, it took Betty White from us. Oh, Betty. If you're listening to this podcast and you don't know who Betty White was, I suggest you either A, contact your primary care physician, or B, blink twice if you're in danger. Either way, <laughs> I'm here to tell you about this actress, this American treasure that we lost in 2021. Ms. White, officially Betty Marion White Ludden, was born in Illinois in 1922, dying less than three weeks before her 100th birthday. Her acting career began in 1939, on the radio, and she had her first film appearance in 1945. Her first television appearance was in 1949 and did not stop until 2019. That is a 70-year span for those keeping track at Ooh. home. 70 years. <sighs> Seven zero years. Most people of my generation know Betty White from her role as Rose Nyland from The Golden Girls, a series, I might add, that really holds up on repeated viewings. But Betty White was far more than the actress who played the sweet, dim-witted Rose. She was sharp, courageous, and willing to try just about anything. She was on three programs called The Betty White Show. Three separate programs, all called The Betty White Show. Two daytime talk programs and one short-lived sitcom. In the first iteration of her talk show, which ran from 1953 to 1954, she refused to fire frequent guest Arthur Duncan, a black tap dancer, after threats to boycott the show came from the Jim Crow South. Because Betty White takes no sass. I have never heard an ill word spoken of Betty White. And may we all enjoy a crusty muffin in her honor. Here's to you, Ms. White. You're here. You're here. You're here. I wonder what uh, what St. Olaf's SEO did this last week. Because <laughs> she was from the town of St. Olaf, and which is where uh, three-fifths of us went to college. And so... So I'd be very curious to see what happened to St. Olaf's uh, internet search traffic. Yeah. This, yeah. So <laughs> the, the story that I heard about this, which I'm guessing is not true, but it's a good story, and I'm going to tell it, that the town where the three-fifths of us went to St. Olaf College is a little town called Northfield, Minnesota. It's a town of about you know, somewhere between twenty and 30,000 people. It also holds two small liberal arts colleges 
St. Olaf College and our crosstown rival, Carlton College. And there was a rumor that I heard, again, probably untrue, that one of the writers of the show was a Carlton grad and so wanted to make the dumb character from St. Olaf, Minnesota. I don't think it's true. It's a good story, but there we are. So, yeah, I heard the same thing. I think it says a lot about Betty White when that people are saying to a person who passed away at 99 that she passed away too soon. Oh yeah. <laughs> I think she was one of the things that a lot of, she she was one of the things that got us through the dark times and she was a a person for whom every appearance on the screen was a happy and joyous and hilarious occasion. So when you saw Betty White on the screen, you knew you were going to be in for good times. And I think a lot of us needed that and probably still need that. But but we cannot fault the lady for, for feeling like 99 years is the end of a good long run. I put this on our Slack channel, but uh, People Magazine put out, didn't, didn't like draft it or we're going to plan it. They actually put out an episode that said Betty White turns 100. I was like at Target... And I saw it. I was like, wow, I didn't know she was 100. I didn't hear that. And then, you know, she died in 99. I was like, damn you, People Magazine. Yeah. Ah. So, yeah. So, Betty White, uh, we miss you already. Uh, I'm now going to pass along the torch to Lee. Lee, who are you going to you Googleize? Uh, I'm going to talk about Norm MacDonald, um, who is one of the most uh, unique comedians, I think, ever. He had such a, a distinct style of comedy. It was it was very dry and very uh, deadpan, but at times it was very. He could be very loud and just unexpectedly energetic, and that was just kind of his unique style. The first thing that I ever remember seeing him in was one of those uh, HBO one hour. They called it One Night Stand, um, just a comedy. Uh, stand-up special, I think in like 1990 or something like that. And I remember recording it and watching it over and over just because I thought he was so funny. And then a few years later, I was watching Saturday Night Live one night and they said, featuring Norm MacDonald. I'm like, oh, he made it on Saturday Night Live. So I was really happy about that. And that made me want to watch Saturday Night Live more. When he finally took over weekend update i think he really changed that he was so different from kevin nealon the way kevin nealon did it his his jokes were a lot more biting and sarcastic um you know he really took aim at david hasselhoff and frank stallone and michael jackson and uh, oj simpson i think and he cites all of his oj simpson jokes as being the reason why he was let go but uh, I always enjoyed his work. You know, he had a very short-lived sitcom that was it was actually pretty funny. But uh, I think it, it it was up against a lot of other shows and just didn't survive. It only ran for one season. <clears throat> he had a film called Dirty Work. I don't know if anyone saw that. That was pretty funny too. It's it didn't break any ground, but it was it was entertaining. And then in his later years. Norm MacDonald has a show on Netflix. It's It was just a talk show that only had a few guests. Uh, and I've watched that over and over again. And that's that's very funny. And he also has an appearance on Jerry Seinfeld's uh, Comedians in Cars Getting Coffee. 
that's one of my favorite episodes as well. That's a great one. Yeah. He also has been hosting a show on, I think it's just on YouTube or something, but it's a, a web-based show that's essentially a talk show with really no rules at all. And it's classic Norm MacDonald in that it's uncomfortable and a lot of just very random, slowly developing bits and things, but it's it's very much a talk show and he interviews different guests and things, but it's kind of classic norm in that all of a sudden you realize that he's in the middle of telling a joke and you didn't even realize that he was telling it until you get to the punchline. Yeah. Yeah. And there's some really, really good episodes of that show that are just really, uh, kind of quintessential him. His comedy is almost like, I would call it like a surreptitious comedy. Sometimes Mm -hmm. you don't know he's joking until just like what you said, like when he gets to the punchline. I really enjoyed his last Letterman appearance when he did the whole bit about Germany. I don't know if you guys ever saw that. I don't remember that. (laughs) He talks about Germany going to war with the world. Yeah, I always really enjoy his work. Uh, I think every time I see him on something, I'm always laughing. I'm always entertained by it. So, uh, you know, he'll be... He'll be sorely missed, and it's it's too bad that I think cancer got him. He had been struggling with it privately for about ten years. I uh, recently rewatched the uh, the roast of Bob Saget, where he did. I didn't even know how to describe it. You kind of just have to watch it. We'll we'll link to it in the show notes. But uh, it was it's either the dumbest comedy routine ever <laughs> or the most brilliant. Yeah, and it's <laughs> it's somehow both. It's really really interesting. Really something else. Uh, unfortunately we just lost Bob Saget as well. That just happened in the last, I think week or so, but yeah, that would, that would definitely be worth checking out. And then, uh, they did a nice appreciation to him on weekend update where they showed some clips of that. And my God, he was funny. Yeah. So good. Yeah. He had his own style and uh, I don't know if you've ever seen that it's on YouTube, but there was a, an appearance he had on uh, late night with Conan O'Brien, uh, when Courtney Thorne Smith was the guest. Have you ever seen that one? It rings a bell, but I don't remember anything about it. Look that one up, because that's one of his funniest appearances ever. Norm MacDonald, R.I.P. Yep. But uh, let's move on to Kyle. Thank you. Yeah, I'm going to talk about Michael K. Williams. Uh, Michael K. Williams was born in East Flatbush, Brooklyn, on November 22nd, 1966. He struggled with drugs and crime as a kid. Uh, However, he eventually enrolled in a national black theater where he did acting and dance. He worked some odd jobs, but, and I love this story because it's pretty much straight out of a movie, inspired by Janet Jackson's Rhythm Nation 1814 album and music video, he quit his job and against the wishes of his family pursued a dance career. I mean, amazing, right? That's incredible. He starred in music videos by George Michael and Madonna. And then he starred in and choreographed the video for Crystal Waters' song, 100% Pure Love. Have you guys listened to that recently? I know that's a strange question, but when I was doing research for this, I listened to it. And my God, that's a jam. It's so good. From the back to the middle and around again, I'm going to be there. Yes, I am. So good. (laughs) Anyways, I digress. If you know Michael K. Williams' face, which I hope you do, it is a very, very distinctive face. And part of that face that makes it so distinctive is he's got a large scar sort of starting from the top middle of his forehead that goes down 
kind of across his, uh, along his nose and into his cheek. Uh, he received that scar when he was at his 25th birthday when a bar fight broke out. He got slashed across the face with a razor blade. So, youch, that's something else. Um, so he kind of went from, you know, a dancing type character or sort of a traditional black actor. And then he said that after that, he basically only started getting what he called thug roles, which he was not, you know, every once in a while, that's fine. But he didn't want to just portray that, especially as a black man in the world. He wanted to, you know, branch out from that. Uh, and one way that he did that and probably the role that he is by far most known for is the role of Omar in The Wire, which started in 2002, uh, one of the most one of the greatest series of all times and one of the most indelible characters in that series. Omar was a character that lived by a self-defined moral code. He bought both humor and gravitas to the role in equal amounts. He was also an openly gay black character, which was really rarely seen on the screen at that time. It just wasn't something that was in the media world. You know, there were certainly people living that life, but it was not anything that was uh, represented in the larger world. He got a lot of flack from lots of different communities for playing a gay character. But on the other side, he also received a lot of gratitude and appreciation, especially from gay black youths who were seeing this represented for the first time on TV. So it just speaks to how representation can really matter. So, you know, something we need to continue to work on today. Uh, He said, I saw a lot of homophobia in my community. Omar definitely helped soften the blow of homophobia, and it opened up a dialogue, definitely. So good on him for that. He was even chosen as the Celebrity Grand Marshal in the 2016 San Francisco Pride Parade. So, I mean, it just goes to show, you know, a character in a movie, in a show as dense and as complex uh, and as, you know, sort of sneaky good as The Wire is that it can take that and really branch out from a cultural perspective, which is pretty darn cool. He also played several small but memorable parts in other shows like Alias, CSI, The Sopranos, Law and Order, Law and Order SVU, Community. Uh, he also starred as Albert Chalky White, who is the leader of the black community in Atlantic City in five seasons of Boardwalk Empire. Uh, this was news to me. He was originally cast as a motion capture alien version of Dryden Voss, who is the crime lord uh, in Solo that was eventually played by Paul Bettany. Uh, he couldn't do it because of scheduling conflicts. But originally, yeah, that was going to be a full CG motion cap alien that was going to be played by him, which would have been really, really cool. Uh, Barack Obama, former president of the United States, paid him as high a compliment as you can receive, saying that The Wire was his favorite show of all time and Omar was his favorite character in the show. So doesn't really get any better than that. He was an electric performer and was the type of actor that others were consistently measured against, whether it be on the show that he's in or aside from that. I mean, he was one of those actors who people were measured against. He was that strong and that potent of an actor. He continued to struggle with drugs throughout his whole life to the point where he could actually barely remember when he met Barack Obama and he told him what I just said about The Wire and about Omar. So he, you know, he had lots of ups and downs. He unfortunately died of a drug overdose on September 6th of this last year uh, with fentanyl, cocaine and heroin in his system. So unfortunately, addiction is a hell of a thing and it got the best of him. But he really brought a lot of incredible, incredible work into the world. Um, I think that what he did in The Wire, I think will live on forever in that show. I know there are people that watch that show every year. You know, it's it's one of those shows that has seen 
justifiably as one of the greatest TV shows of all time. And I think he's the best part of it. So that is that is no small feat. So that's Michael K. Williams, uh, unfortunately died at the age of 54. All right, let's hand it off to Mark. Mark, who are you speaking of today? Yes. Uh, well, gentlemen, I would like to present to you uh, the great Christopher Plummer, uh, truly a giant of Hollywood. In the early 50s, he arrived on the scene as a fresh-faced lad from Toronto and uh, for quite a long time, for several years, was uh, a, a working man's actor. And then, uh, and then came this little picture called The Sound of Music. It would be followed for by many, many resume pieces over the over the next few decades, but, uh, you know, that featured things like The Return of the Pink Panther, The Man Who Would Be King, Somewhere in Time, Dial M for Murder, and hey, why not The Velveteen Rabbit and David the Gnome, and An American Tale. But then Dragnet and The Cosby Show, he had, uh, he had a, an eclectic resume, and this is all stuff that's just before 1990. He, of course, would uh, would continue to act, you know, well into his 80s, and uh, at one point set the record for the oldest man to win an Oscar uh, when he won uh, won the Oscar at 82. I believe that was for the the movie Beginners, where he uh, he plays an elderly man uh, who comes out as gay, and tell the story of uh, of his experience there, and in his uh, acceptance speech for that Oscar. He said something like, you're only two years older than I am. Darling, where have you been all my life? <laughs> Christopher Plummer was, uh, was a good actor as a young man. He had quite a presence and he aged like a fine wine. He only became more stately. He only grew in his presence. He became more in demand. And as a as a casting agent in Hollywood, if you needed uh, an elderly man with presence, chances are, like, v- very strong chances are, you were looking for Christopher Plummer. That is, if you if you didn't want Anthony Hopkins, <laughs> and um, and in demand he was, you know, until until very recent years, like uh, just a few years ago, he uh, he was uh, a feature role in Knives Out, where he was he was very very impressive. So good. Yeah, mm-hmm. so good. I mean, if it weren't for all the other performances in that movie, I would say he stole the show. <laughs> but yes, I mean, for uh, for all this clout and gravitas that he brought, he was nominated for... Actually, I don't know how many nominations. He won three Oscars, uh, all for Best Supporting Actor. He was nominated for seven Emmys and won two of them. He was nominated for six Tonys and won two of those. And honestly, that... That feels a little bit skimpy. Like, it feels like he should have been more uh, accoladed than that. My favorite role of his to this day is um, when he played Mike Wallace in The Insider. Oh, yeah, that's a great movie. Yeah, he was fantastic in that. I always forget about that movie. I think that it's a little sadly ironic that both the old men from Pixar's Up passed away in the same year. Yes. Oh, oh I yeah. think about that. Yeah. 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 That was Christopher Plummer as the villain, and Ed Asner as the as the hero. I had no idea Christopher Plummer wasn't British. Yeah, me either. Yeah. Or Austrian. Toronto is <laughs> is Little Britain, basically. <laughs> Might as well be. Yeah. Ah, <laughs> <laughs> uh, but yeah, uh, Christopher Plummer. What a what an awesome dude. What a huge presence that we lost. 
Uh, Hollywood won't be the same without him. Cheers to Christopher Plummer. R.I.P. Agreed. Uh, Jeremiah, uh, it is to you. Indeed. The person I'm going to speak about is um, considered the godfather of modern black cinema, and that is uh, Mario Van Peebles' father, Melvin Van Peebles. Yeah. He was, uh, he was born in 1932. Uh, he is an, a, an American actor, filmmaker, playwright, novelist, composer. He's an artist, poet. Uh, he is a, a, a true Renaissance man. And um, he, he is a fascinating story in his own right. And I think um, what makes him such a significant force uh, outside of his body of work is how much what he did open the doors and influenced uh, a younger generation of African-American filmmakers like Spike Lee and John Singleton and, and basically everybody. Um, so much of what, what we know of African-American filmmakers and black cinema wouldn't have been possible without Melvin Van Peebles kind of paving the way to a lot of that, um, which he did through his movie Sweet Sweetback's Badass Song. Uh, in 1971 it wasn't his first project um but it is definitely his most iconic um he was able to create it with a loan from bill cosby for fifty thousand dollars and then he wrote directed produced scored edited and starred in this film uh, which ended up costing about five hundred thousand dollars opened in two places atlanta and detroit and went on to make over $15 million. Wow. And uh, largely because of the, the word of mouth of, of this, um, it, within the, the working class kind of blue-collar African-American communities, and, and a soundtrack by Earth, Wind, and Fire doesn't hurt it either. But that, that film and the success that it had really made Hollywood say, there's, I mean, selfishly say, oh, there's money in these types of movies and uh, open the door for sort of that black exploitation movement of theater or, uh, of, of cinema. And um, I, I, one of the things that I love about Melvin is that he, he never, because the MPAA always, uh, or, or at the time the MPAA didn't have uh, any African-Americans on their board. So he refused to let them rate his movies, give them a, a, a rating. So they were always ended up being rated X because they didn't have a rating, um, which he kind of took as a badge of as uh, of honor at the time. But uh, yeah, he is a, a fascinating guy. He ended up his final days were in Paris, where he was painting and writing. Um, he has won everything from uh, Critics' Choice Awards to Most Promising Book Awards, Best Score for an Album. Um, Best uh, Musical, uh, Lifetime Achievement Awards, uh, everything under the sun he has kind of been, had his hands in. And he's just a, a fascinating, fascinating guy. And uh, it makes me wish that I had chosen Sweetback's Badass Song when we were kind of highlighting uh, African-American directors, because I feel like that was a, a missed opportunity that that now I wish I could go back and and try. So I'm gonna I'm gonna seek it out anyway, just because I uh, the more that I have read about him, the more I really want to see that 
that movie. Um, There's no one saying you can't pick it in the future, Jer. That's true. That's true. Mm-hmm. Um, it's a trip. That movie is a, a lot. It's real good, <laughs> but it's a lot. <laughs> That's what I've heard. And even up until a few years ago, he was the he was the lead of a band called Mar- Melvin Van Peebles with Laxative. <laughs> Um, and he named it that because uh, the band jazz. Uh, Van People said that they, he named the band Laxative because they make <laughs> it happen, and I love that. Cool to the end, man. Cool to the end, no doubt. So that is Melvin Van Peebles. I haven't seen anything of his other than Sweetbacks, uh, but that now I realize that I should definitely do so. It's really interesting because he's got a huge catalog of work in so many in in directing producing writing composing some theater stuff some um everything else but but he never really hit like he did with sweet sweetbacks again there was some a, a lot of things that got recognition but none of them hit the popularity in sort of the the zeitgeist like that one did there were some things about the uh, Black Panther called Panther. Actually, there was a movie that Mario Van Peebles uh, starred in playing his dad. I, I don't remember the name of that one now. Uh, but yeah, he's got, I mean, his catalog of work goes from 1957 through now. So, or through 2019, I guess, 2020. But um, yeah, I, I, it would be interesting to kind of check out some of these other other pieces of his acting, his directing, his writing, that sort of thing. Uh, and with that, we are done with our first round. So let's dive into our bonus lightning round, and I'll pass it on to Lee to start us off with those. Thank you. Um, I would like to talk about uh, Richard Donner, who is a director. I first knew of his work uh, because of the Superman Movie, the first Superman movie that came out in 1978, and that sparked my interest in superhero movies. So I will always remember him for that. He started out directing TV, I believe, and his, he had a breakthrough movie um, with The Omen in 1976. I don't know if anybody saw that, but it is very creepy. I didn't know uh, he did that. That's interesting. Uh, yeah, yeah, I love The Omen. Yeah. It's it's one of the creepier horror movies I think ever made. <clears throat> but the movie that really put him on the map was Superman the movie in 1978 um, that kind of discovered Christopher Reeve and Margot Kidder and kind of brought Marlon Brando back into, you know, popularity, um, even though he was notoriously difficult to work with. There was a bit of controversy in his tenure as the Superman director because they were filming Superman 2 at the same time. And when they stopped to do press for the first movie, he was fired in between. And they brought in Richard Lester, who ended up reshooting most of the movie and, in my opinion, made it a little worse. Oh, that's right. They had the Donner cut recently. They came out with like an alternate version of it. Yeah, that was kind of closer to like his realized vision, even though they had to use like rehearsal footage for a lot of it. It's too bad because I, re- I really would have liked to have seen what he was going to do with Superman 2 and possibly even Superman 3 if that had been uh, as big as the first movie. 
We also know him from directing The Goonies, the Lethal Weapon movies, um, Scrooged, and I think that little-known Tom Hanks movie, Radio Flyer. Did you guys ever see that? No, huh? <laughs> I've never even heard of it. it. It's a story that's told through narration by Tom Tom. Hank. Oh, did I say Tom Cruise? I meant Tom Hanks. Yeah, you said Tom Hanks. You're right. Okay. Tom Hanks. Starring Elijah Wood and I'm forgetting oh, the kid's name. I did see that. From yeah. Jurassic Park. Um, Joe Mazzello, I think his name is. Oh, yeah. The kid? Yeah. 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 I think that's right. Yeah. Uh, it didn't get great reviews, but uh, I thought it was actually a pretty funny movie. It was, it was a good movie. It was entertaining. But yeah, he he produced a lot of movies as well. The X Men, some of the X Men movies, I believe he was in the process of directing a sequel to The Goonies. Yeah, that's been bounced around for ever and ever and ever. Yeah, yeah. Um, but uh, unfortunately, he passed away. Uh, looks like July fifth of last year. It says cardiopulmonary failure but i'm just guessing that's uh natural causes so yeah it's crazy through the goonies lady hawk which i love scrooged maverick with gibson movie like he was a big part of my sort of growing up years of movies and i didn't even realize it yeah because i've always just associated with him with superman yep yeah that that roster of films is something else. Agreed. Yeah. I had no idea it was that big. His directing style reminds me of Robert Zemeckis in a lot of way in the in that he never directs the same movie twice, really. It's like each each one is very different, I think. Yep. Richard Donner, you will be missed. Let's move on to Kyle once again. Thank you. Uh for my shorter pick, I'm gonna talk about George Siegel. Seagal? Siegel, I think. Uh, born uh, February 13th, 1934, once again in New York City. Uh, my picks are brought to you by New York City this year. Uh, he's a junior, uh, senior, was a malt and hop agent. So he was in beer making. Also, his brother John was in the beer business. He was an innovator in cultivating new hop varieties. So I guess next time you drink an IPA, thank George Siegel's family, I guess. That's pretty interesting. Uh, he attended Harvard College as well as Columbia College. He graduated from Columbia with a degree in performing arts and drama. Uh, he also played the banjo. He led a jazz band called the Red Onion Jazz Band. Uh, it played his first wedding. He also served in the Korean War, where he played in a band called Corporal Bruno's Sad Sack Six, which is just the best darn band name I've heard in a long while. I, I love that. <laughs> And laxative. <laughs> Seriously, the rock and roll heaven's got a hell of a band. Hollywood heaven's got a hell of a band this time. Uh, he studied under the infamous Lee Strasberg at the Actors Studio. Uh, mostly started working in theater at first, but then got his first movie gig in 1961. He was in dozens upon dozens of movies in the 60s and 70s, sometimes as the lead, most often as kind of a uh, a player amongst uh, everybody else, which is how I'm going to talk about sort of two different films that I think speak to his style and his range. Uh, the first of which is a movie that we have covered here on Remakers Mark, which is Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf from 1966. Uh, he played the young faculty member who, along with his wife, have a night schmoozing, drinking, and shouting 
with slash at Elizabeth Taylor and Richard Burton. Uh, he, I guess, kind of played third-ish fiddle in the film, but he was not lost at all. Um, I think he held his own in a role that's pretty darn challenging and alongside powerful, domineering folks like Taylor and Burton. So uh, he did very well in that. And that's just an extraordinary movie. I highly recommend he that. he was nominated for an Academy Award in that. That's right. Yep. All four of them were nominated for Academy Awards and the two women won, but the men did not which I'm okay with. Uh, and then the other thing that I want to focus on is something that came to my attention of late, which is a show called The Goldbergs, uh, which is on ABC. I've been watching it on Hulu. He plays the grandpa of the titular Goldberg family. He's goofy, pretty horny, and pretty much always game for whatever sort of shenanigans the grandkids get themselves into, uh, pretty much egging them on along the way. He brought a lot of hearts, a lot of silliness, and just the right amount of sort of like, now you've learned your lesson, wait, to the role. Uh, I, I'm really sad that I, this, I think, is the last season of the Goldbergs. I don't know where they were at in filming as far as when he passed away. But uh, yeah, actually, that was back in March. So I think that was it probably affected that. But anyways, uh, he is uh, really, really great. Uh, folks of our generation probably remember him best from Just Shoot Me, where he played Jack the owner of the magazine where the show was set. Uh, that show kind of drive me nuts, but I liked him and I kind of liked the aloofness that he brought uh, with that. I appreciated that. Uh, he had unfortunately died of complications from bypass surgery on March 23rd of this last year at the age of 87. So George Siegel, you were great and you left a lot, a lot of roles for us to dig into and uh, you'll be missed. All right, Mark, once again, on to you. Thank you, Kyle. For my second pick, I would like to talk about Michael Nesmith, whose name might be, he's maybe not a household name, but his band certainly is. He was in The Monkees. Exactly what he did in The Monkees is, uh, well, let's say the roles in that band are, are ill-defined, maybe nebulous, because they, they all did a little bit of everything. If you could say that Mike Nesmith was one thing in the monkeys, you would probably say he was the guitarist. But it's also totally fair to say that he was one of their songwriters, one of their singers. He did quite a few things, and even after the monkeys, he was uh, a bit of a novelist. To take a step back, uh, he's appearing on this episode because the monkeys were in fact a television band. The band was created for the show to try to riff off of uh, the Beatles' popularity. Um, where the creators were interested in an American version of the Beatles. Of course, they insisted on having one British guy because that British guy was adorable. And so they decided they needed to have him, even though it was supposed to be an American version of the Beatles. The The band went on to do very interesting things. And even though they were and will always be panned as a ripoff of the Beatles, which is both literally true and a sad, sad overlooking of a really interesting and creative band that made fantastic songs. I forgot where that sentence was going, but um, <laughs> uh, suffice it to say, the Monkees did some really cool stuff. They started off as a as a band that was merely a front where the, uh, the producers wrote all the music and the actors performed much of it, but by their by their third album, the the actual band members were writing and recording all of it. They were good enough, and they felt that they were good enough that they should be doing it. They they took their place. They really had earned it, and they claimed their place in music history, and uh, made a good, made good use of it by by doing interesting interesting stuff, and writing a ton of great songs. And yes, uh, 
uh, Mike Nesmith, uh, was an equal factor in their success and their creativity as, as any of them were. Perhaps any of them except for Davy Jones, who was uh, maybe just the master of the tambourine. I believe <laughs> Mike Nesmith's mom or someone in his family invented Whiteout. So that's that's where he got most of his money. <laughs> <laughs> that's awesome. The monkeys have uh, were and will probably always be my mom's favorite band of all time. I listened to a lot of the monkeys growing up. Like I think probably until high school, I listened to like infinitely more monkeys than Beatles, which I know is <laughs> sounds blasphemous, but that's yeah, just what it was. I, I, I remember it. watching it, <laughs> and I used to watch their show religiously. Yeah, I watched a lot of their show as well. I think it was on Nickelodeon, maybe. Yeah. And currently, my household is so, so Beatles, where, I mean, uh, my wife has always been uh, since her youth, and and she really taught me a lot about the Beatles. Um, but now my two daughters have learned about the Beatles in, in their preschool, which is awesome. That's, that's the greatest preschool. <laughs> And, and they're still super into the Beatles. Uh, uh, my older daughter is learning Beatles songs on guitar. They have Beatles posters and Beatles plushies in their rooms. And I am determined for them both to learn about the monkeys. Because <laughs> that's a, a, that is just a fantastic way to, uh, to follow up on, on learning about the Beatles and about the fact that the, that the Beatles had in the world and some of the, the things that they inspired. I think that it would be a great practical joke if you told them that the Beatles were a rip-off band of the monkeys. <laughs> <laughs> so that is Mike Nesmith and the monkeys. And I will hand off now <laughs> to Jer. My second pick, uh, I chose him. He may not be the uh, most interesting or sort of significant um, person on the list of folks um, who passed in 2021, but I picked him for a couple different reasons. Um, one of which is because he's the only person on the list that I actually met. Uh, <laughs> and that is Dustin Diamond. Mm. Um, you will, I almost exclusively know him as Sam Screech Powers from the Saved by the Bell franchise or Saved by the Bell universe, I guess, because there's about five different shows and two movies uh, <laughs> all based around the same characters of uh, Saved by the Bell. Um, Dustin Diamond is kind of a, a tortured soul of sorts, um, finding fame as a kid, um, playing playing this sort of goofy nerd character in Saved by the Bell and really finding insane amounts of fame from that because that show was, was kind, of, uh, kind of crazy. Um, and then he just rode that, rode that celeb status as long as he could um, through, like I said, various iterations of the show. Uh, and then when that dried up, he was doing the the sort of B-list celeb circuit of things like Celebrity Fit Club and um, uh, other shows of that ilk that had kind of the old celebrities on them, uh, on them. I think he was a regular guest on maybe like Ricky Lake or something. That that sounds like something that he would do. Mm -hmm. He released a tell-all biography about the Saved by the Bell um, world, 
called Behind the Bell that got everybody all riled up because it was a story of sex, drugs, and rock and roll and all of this illicit behavior that all these kids were doing and how they were all treated by the um, producers and, and so on and so forth. And uh, many people have come out since then saying that it's a it's kind of a bunch of bull. Uh, he even uh, in interviews have said that it was ghostwritten and that he doesn't even think that it's all true. And it seems like a lot of his uh, a lot of his past Saved by the Bell life has been a lot of trying to find that celebrity status again in, by any means necessary and just kind of ruining his life in the process. I feel really bad for for him uh, in a lot of ways because I think that he he got sort of that taste of that that life early on and just chased it for for the rest of his life. Um, in his life, he had to um, file for bankruptcy. Um, he went on Howard Stern and asked people to donate money to save his house. Um, he's been in jail a couple times, uh, once because he got into a bar fight in Wisconsin and and possibly stabbed a guy with a switchblade. Um, he was married and then divorced, but his death certificate says he is never married. So there's, it's just a, a very weird uh, tale of his life. Um, finally, in in January of this past year, he was diagnosed with um, stage four small cell carcinoma in his lungs and didn't even make it, I think, three weeks after that diagnosis before he passed away at the age of 44, which is younger than I am. And the other little connection that we have, besides having having met him at one point, is that he died in Cape Coral, Florida, which is where I went to high school. But I guess I threw him on on the list as my second pick, um, both because uh, he was at uh, my college, which is not St. Olaf, but Augsburg College. He was doing a stand-up uh, thing there at one point when I was going to school there, and so I just kind of ran into him on campus one day. And he seemed like both a good dude, but also... Uh, an arrogant want to be cooler than he actually is kind of do like he was so <laughs> trying to separate so much from this character of screech but that's the only thing he had going for him as far as notoriety so it was like this he hated and loved it and himself it seemed like but, but beyond that i guess the other reason why i i threw him on here is because he is two years younger than i am and developed uh very very crazy cancer that that took him out really fast and that's uh that's i guess where we're at in life right now with with where you know where the where our kind of groups of friends are is that that kind of crap is starting to become a thing that we think about and i hate thinking about you know mortality and death and things like that and hearing about people that I know or celebrities that, that have, uh, that are facing these kinds of things just sort of brings it all into perspective and kind of freaks you out a little bit. So, um, not to end on a down note. So I'm going to hand it off to Andy in a second here to, to bring us to some, some joy, but, um, but yeah, it's Dustin Diamond. He's, he's, uh, he's a complicated person who lived a complicated life. And I, I feel bad for him. I'm sad that he's gone, and uh, I hope that wherever he is now, he's finding a little bit better uh, peace with himself. I have a funny reference um, that involved him. I don't know if you guys ever saw the movie Made. It was written and directed by John Favreau. 
back in mm-hmm. early 2000s or something like that. There's a scene where John Favreau's character and Vince Vaughn's character are trying to get into a club and they're being denied. And then Dustin Diamond walks up as himself and he gets in. No, The bouncer just lets him in. He's like, hey, how's it going? You know, and he just shakes his hand, gives him a hug and lets him in. And they're like, was that Screech? Did you just let Screech in and you're not going to let us in? You know, so <laughs> I thought that was a funny, funny scene. It's interesting if you look at his filmography, it, it goes a couple little minor roles. And then in 1988, it's his role, Screech. Then another thing, Screech. Another thing, <laughs> Screech, 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 Screech. And then after that, so that's 1994. Uh, and then after that, it's Waiter, himself, himself, Doctor, himself, 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 Zanius the Eternal, himself, himself. himself. <laughs> yep. Like he, he just made, he made a living playing the guy that played Screech. But yeah, I got to imagine that just got to wear on you. But Andy, let's finish this all up with you, Harbinger of Death. I'm glad I can bring us out on a happier note that still talks about death. I'm going to finish us, uh, finish the episode up by talking about Jessica Walter. Ms. Walter was an American actress whose career spanned decades, starting with a theater credit in 1958 and culminating in 2021. Depending on your age, you may know her from play Misty for me, for which she was nominated for a golden globe. Or you may know her from her scene-stealing role as Lucille Bluth in Arrested Development, or the animated equivalent in Archer. Incidentally, she started and ended her theater career in the same location, the Bucks County Playhouse in Pennsylvania. She was nominated for Golden Globes twice, Primetime Emmy Awards five times, winning once for the show Amy Prentice, and three Screen Actors Guild Awards. She also won a Clarence Derwent Award for her Broadway debut in 1963. To me, Jessica Walter will always be Lucille Bluth. She was an actress who knew how to combine poise with ridiculousness to get the laugh. And I'm glad I had the chance to see her perform. Rest in peace, Ms. Walter. I don't know much about her before Arrested Development, but my God, is she perfect in Arrested Development. She was... Yeah the most perfectest in that role. <sighs> but also the most perfectest in Archer. Which is essentially the, 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 the st- I actually heard her interviewed uh, about this and apparently the producers of Archer were saying, we really want to find someone like Jessica Walter for this character. And eventually they just said, why don't we ask Jessica Walter? <laughs> <They did. laughs> so sometimes you just got to go to the source. Mm-hmm. Yeah. How we need somebody who could play sort of a that character from Arrested Development that Jessica Walters plays. Who could do that? Hmm. Well, thank you everyone for joining us for this year's In Memoriam episode. We will continue on uh, your regularly scheduled programming with our next uh, feature film, which will be Duin. Did I say that correctly? It's pronounced. No, it's pronounced Dune. 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 We're gonna do Dune. The 1984 <laughs> Dune. <laughs> anyway. Remakers Mark is a proud member of the Mathis Hard Network. To find out more information about this podcast or any other podcast on the network, check us out at mathishard.net. There you will find show notes with links to all the people, movies, and links discussed in this episode. This information is also attached to the show file in the podcast client of your choice. 
You can find us anywhere you listen to podcasts, including Google Play, Spotify, and Apple Podcasts, where you can rate and review Remakers Mark, which would mean the world to us. And now YouTube, because there's an exclamation point. And now YouTube. We are on both Facebook, search for Mathis Hardnet or Remakers Mark, and Twitter at Remakers Mark. So please join in the discussion there too. Gentlemen, as always, I enjoy our time together. May the force be with you. And also, and also with you. With you.